Hello, hello everyone. This is Dr. Aaron Stair. Some of you know me as Dr. Eeks from bloomingwellness.com. Um, here we are. It's another episode of Causes or Cures. Hope everybody's doing okay out there. Um, so this one's a, a really interesting topic. Uh, I've been reading a lot about antibody-dependent enhancement, and if you don't know what that is, that's okay, because you're going to learn. Um, but, I, you know, there's been videos out there about it. There's some that have gotten millions of views uh, related to the new vaccines for COVID-19. Um, and I've watched a couple of those videos, and I think there's a lot of inaccuracies. Um, they don't explain it well. They don't represent it well. So um, at the same time, I'm curious about this topic. Uh, and so I wanted to um, bring someone on who really understands it, really understands vaccines, um, has done a lot of research in this area. So so that's what I did. So in this episode, I will be chatting with Dr. Robert Malone. He is um, a vaccinologist. He is a physician, um, and he's going to explain antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE, in, in, in an easy-to-understand way. You know, you don't have to be a scientist. You'll understand, maybe not all of it, but you'll understand some of it for sure. Um, and he's going to talk about vaccine development, since he's been involved in that for many, many years, uh, COVID-19 in general, where he thinks it came from, how antibodies work, uh, whether or not he thinks we'll get to herd immunity, um, and, you know, what the future holds for us, at least uh, pandemic-wise. Uh, I, I don't, he's not going to tell anyone if they're going to win the lottery or, or anything like that, unfortunately. Um, who is he? Uh, so, you know, I will include his full bio, a link in the podcast description and also on my website so you can do a deeper dive if you so wish. Um, but, and, and this is, this bio, this intro is from multiple bios that I found. He is an internationally recognized scientist. Um, he's known for his pioneering work as one of the original inventors of naked DNA and RNA delivery. Um, and one of the original inventors of DNA vaccination. He's had over 100 peer-reviewed publications. He's chaired numerous conferences on vaccines, sat on numerous federal studies. Um, he presented um, to the World Health Organization. Many He participated in many high-level meetings there. He was involved in getting the Ebola vaccine here, which is a really cool story. Um, he's developed, designed, managed vaccine, bio-threat, and biologic clinical trials, um, and I'm also going to let him talk a little more about what he did, uh, but in short, he really, really knows this stuff. So let's let's just uh, get him on the line here and start asking some questions. All right. So Dr. Robert Malone, you have, I, I was trying to find, um, going through all your online bios, and they say you are one of the original inventors of DNA and RNA delivery, DNA vaccination. You helped get the Ebola vaccine off the ground, but I'm going to come back to that at the end of the podcast. Um, and so can you just talk about who you are and the professional work that you've done? Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I'm a physician um, and I'm also a scientist. Uh, I have been working in virology and uh, biodefense and 
uh, developing vaccines and drug countermeasures for infectious diseases for most of my career, beginning in the uh, mid 80s, early to mid 80s, um, starting with uh, being a student in a laboratory or set of laboratories that were involved in the very earliest days of AIDS uh, research. Um, uh, so that goes back to 83. Um, I, uh, I'm trained at uh, UC San Diego and the Salk Institute Molecular Biology and Virology Labs mm -hmm. and at Northwestern Medical School and uh, at UC Davis in biochemistry and uh, recently completed a fellowship at Harvard on uh, clinical research, international clinical research. Uh, the first uh, third of my career, I was an academic um, working in California and at Maryland. And then um, since uh, about um, 2001, right after 9-11, I transitioned to uh, working with the Department of Defense in um, uh, developing vaccines and countermeasures for biodefense pathogens. Hmm. And uh, since that time have focused not so much on being a bench research discovery type person, uh -huh. but uh, bridging, um, they call it bridging the valley of death, the, the challenge of bridging the cultures of uh, discovery research and what we call advanced development which is um, taking a product candidate all the way to uh, licensure and marketing so that it's available for people to use as opposed to uh, just publishing papers uh, mm -hmm. as an academic. Um, so about 30 years, uh, pathology, immunology, molecular virology, um, and mostly focused on the problems around how can we rapidly develop things that can protect people from infectious disease. How's that? That's good. That was great. Um, okay. So I just finished, I finished the book that you sent that you co you co-wrote with your wife or she wrote most of it. I'm not sure how that worked out, but um, there was a lot of great points in there and how to address the pandemic in general, but also about the subject that I wanted to focus on today, which is antibody dependent enhancement as it relates to uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and also like if we could talk about it in um, an easy to understand way, <laughs> that, that was the feedback I got from my listeners. Um, but let's start here. Basically what I got from your book and kind of what I figured vaccines generally take a long time to develop. They cost billions of dollars and you can tell me if this statistic is incorrect, but on average have a 94% chance of failure. So it sounds really, really difficult. So can you explain why, why it's so difficult? Really difficult, really expensive, and it takes a long time usually. So uh, credit where due, um, what's been done uh, in this outbreak with vaccine development has uh, been miraculous. I think that's fair. Uh, never unprecedented almost, uh, certainly since the uh, mid middle of last century when a lot of the classic childhood vaccines were developed. Mm -hmm. um, why does it take so long? Uh, a lot of things can go wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, the big picture is that 
unlike drugs, vaccines are things that we give to people that are otherwise healthy. Mm -hmm. And so they have to be super safe, usually. This is a, a, a primary emphasis, is to demonstrate that the vaccine candidate is not only effective, but it has a safety level that makes it so that it's ethically acceptable to administer it to people, have people take that vaccine, um, even if they have no disease at all. They may have some disease in the future, they may get exposed to disease, but they don't have it right now. So you're not treating something that already exists, you're protecting against something that might or might not happen in the future. So what we absolutely don't want, or, or you know, any of us do, uh, is that the vaccine itself causes injury to the patient um, when the patient isn't otherwise 100% um, sure of having a disease state. Uh, so how do we make sure that things are safe and effective? Uh, it, it, um, it's a, it's a time-consuming process. And if we wanna make sure that things are safe at the level where those agents, those vaccines are gonna be administered to millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, um, that means that we have to be careful that we're not going to have uh, bad things happen, um, mm -hmm. technically we call them adverse events that are vaccine related at any substantial frequency. We really don't want things uh, happening uh, at any more than about, at worst, one in about 10,000 uh, administered doses, uh, unless the disease is super bad. Um, so in sum, the, the big picture thing is that vaccines have to be super safe. Super and safe. that takes time to prove their safety. Right. Um, and in addition, uh, the, the human immune system is substantially different from other species. Uh, and um, so uh, just because something might work, you know, notoriously in a mouse um, doesn't, doesn't translate to predicting whether or not it's gonna work in humans. And uh, we like to say that mice lie, uh, um, monkeys mislead, and the only thing that proves efficacy in humans is efficacy in humans. But you have to go through the steps to show that the vaccine candidate is reasonably likely to have activity um, efficacy um, in an animal model and also to show that it's quite safe in an animal model before you can take the risk of administering it to human beings. Right. Uh, that's just fundamental bioethics. So all those steps combined results in uh, a series of things and we could lay out a chart and uh, talk about how long usually this step versus that step takes. Um, but they add up to at least a decade usually um, much of that has to do with once you actually get it into the clinic, um, the FDA usually requests that we take things very stepwise and uh, make sure that we give sufficient time after the uh, vaccine product has been tested in a group of people, patient volunteers or, or subjects in a clinical trial Typically, we want to wait at least about six to six months to a year after the vaccine has been administered to see if anything um, is going to crop up 
that would be a potential uh, harm like autoantibodies or other types of things that vaccines can elicit in some cases. So um, I'm gonna stop there and, and uh, okay. ask you to, to help guide me in terms of yeah. uh, so, more information. Right, so you were talking about the, the animal studies and I appreciate what you said that things are different basically in animals, um, but that's still, that's a still considered like the preclinical steps, right? Like the animal trials. I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we know like from what I've read and people have talked about this before, the, the past attempts to make vaccines against uh, other coronaviruses, right? The, which is a fa the family that COVID-19 comes from, so to speak, like MERS and SARS, they failed because of something called antibody dependent enhancement, or maybe the consequences of something you explained to me the other day really well, original anagenic, anagenic sin. Um, so I guess, can you explain what antibody dependent enhancement is in really simple terms to like someone who doesn't really know much about, I guess, immunology? Um, you know, like what, you know, like for example, they don't know what the FC receptor is uh, or uh, stuff like that. Um, and if it makes sense. Yep, What's that? Completely makes sense, and I'll try. Okay. I'll okay. probably fail. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, <I'll, laughs> there's no I, failing. I, um, <laughs> um, as a as a, uh, I don't know if I'm a journeyman immunologist yet, but maybe. Um, <laughs> I used to I used to call it immunobabble. Um, everything has immuno this and immuno that, and it's just word salad sometimes when yeah. you're trying to listen to it and make sense out of it. And it has, the, the field of immunology has developed a language uh, that's really complex, largely because the ideas are complex. Right. And they've developed at different points in time. So um, I'll try not to uh, dive into immunobabble, uh, but <laughs> forgive me if I do, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> right. So we all, we all know the idea of an antibody, pretty much. What is that? Okay. It's, it's a protein, it's actually a multi-stranded protein that's made in a particular type of cell uh, called a B cell, and it's excreted. It's pushed out of the cell and put out of the circulation into your blood and your lymph and, and uh, the fluids around all your cells. Okay, so B cells make this protein type called antibodies. And uh, antibodies are designed, um, I'm going to grossly simplify, so don't beat me up if you're an immunologist out there, okay? Um, if you could imagine kind of, imagine a fork, okay? A fork has with four tines, okay? And imagine that the tines of that fork are designed so that they can stick particular things. They have such an intricate, they're like got little keys on the end of the fork, and those keys are designed to only act, interact with certain things that they can, certain locks that uh -huh. they can access, okay? And then the, the fork has a handle, okay? Um, that, if that is, works for you as a mental metaphor, that's a reasonable idea about an antibody. Of course, it's really flexible. It's a teeny tiny protein. You can't see it, but, but the basic structure is, is kind of like a-, a That's good. I like that. Okay, all right, so uh, B cells make proteins that are multi-stranded 
that are kind of shaped like a fork. And at the end of the fork, there are things that are kind of like molecular keys that are designed in, in actually there's a, a, an evolution that happens during the development of the antibodies. It's amazing stuff. There's actually genetic mutations that accrue in the B cell when it gets educated about how to make the particular fork that it makes. Huh. And that uh, has to do with that, the ends, the keys on that fork learning, the B cell learning how to make the best key to stick to something. Uh -huh. And the thing that we're interested in, of course, let's just uh, keep it simple and things that people will understand. Right. Um, so since we're talking about uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID, um, the vaccines that, that are in the press right now are pretty much all designed to generate antibodies, forks, that bind, have keys, that can stick to uh, the spike protein, which is the surface protein on the, on the outside of the coronavirus that the coronavirus uses to attach to cells and infect them through the ACE2 receptor and, and another co-receptor called TMPRSS2. Um, so the coronavirus has spike proteins on its surface and the vaccines are designed to educate B cells to make their particular antibodies that are like forks that have little keys on the end of those forks that are designed to stick onto the spike. Right. Um, okay, so now we got the basics. Yeah. Uh, going back to the fork metaphor, the handle of the fork that sticks out um, is actually not just a nerd. Uh, it's not just hanging out there in the wind. It, because everything in biology is exquisitely refined to, to have function. So the, the, the handle of the fork um, has, uh, has activity for binding um, other things, um, particular receptors that are uh, present on the surface of a variety of different cell types, particularly cells that are involved in gobbling up debris and viruses and junk and stuff that needs to be recycled. Um, so we call those monocytes or macrophage and dendritic cells. We've got a lot of bunch of words for those, but you can think of these as big eaters. That's what macrophage means. And macrophage have uh, molecules on their surface that are designed to bind to the handle of the forks. Okay. Um, so antibody dependent enhancement, now we get to, so now we've got, I, I've kind of talked about the player of the B cell. B cell makes the antibody, antibody's kind of like a fork. It can, has keys that can bind to spike protein and it's got a handle and that handle um, has activity. And one of the activities in that handle is that it's able to stick to certain types of cells really good because they have the right receptor. And those cells are generally considered called monocytes or macrophage and also include dendritic cells. These are cells that normally gobble stuff up and degrade it. And also by the way, participate in educating the B cells um, to make better forks. Okay, so antibody dependent enhancement is a special type of 
Um, uh, bad thing that vaccinologists worry about. Um, and hopefully most of the time those bad things don't turn out, but as vaccinologists, we have to be super aware of potential safety concerns because our job is to make sure that things are really safe and that people can take them uh, uh, without concern, um, even though they're currently healthy to protect them against future disease. So there's certain types of things that can happen with vaccines that we worry about and they don't happen very often, but they tend to happen with certain types of viruses in particular. And uh, that category of things we can call disease enhancement. So there are some conditions, some diseases, some situations where you can administer a, uh, a developmental vaccine, let's say developmental, because if, it, if this happened routinely, the vaccine wouldn't be licensed. Mm -hmm. So let's say we're developing a new vaccine and sometimes uh, for no necessary fault of our own, it can be that the vaccine will cause a person getting vaccinated to actually get worse disease when they get infected. Um, and so that's uh, disease enhancement and there are different ways that can happen. One of the ways that it can happen is antibody mediated disease enhancement. Okay, so ADE is the ADE. acronym. Okay. Okay. And so how, what does this mean, antibody disease enhancement? What it means in simple terms is that those forks that we talked about that bind a virus, let's say coronavirus, um, uh, and have a handle that binds to macrophage and dendritic cells and other antigen-presenting cells, that fork can serve as a bridge between the virus and that particular cell type. And it could be, you know, in, in when antibody dependent enhancement or ADE happens, it's usually a case where the macrophage or monocyte normally doesn't get infected by that kind of a virus. But when that virus gets coated by those forks, the handles of the forks sticking out makes them really sticky, makes that coated virus really sticky. And what does it stick to? It sticks to macrophage and monocytes. And when it does that, so that normally they would bind to the handle of the antibody and they would kill the virus, attack it. Mm -hmm. In some cases, when they bind to the handle of the fork, the tail of the antibody, it can actually make it so the virus can infect those cells that it normally would not be able to infect. Mm. And it happens that these types of cells that move around a lot, if you've seen an amoeba you know, under the microscope or you've seen a picture of these cells moving around, that's kind of the way macrophage and monocytes are. They move all over in the body. And among other things, they go to lymph nodes. Yeah. And so what can happen is that the antibodies can enhance the infection of these types of cells that don't normally get infected by that virus. And 
enable, and those cells then become productively infected and they basically um, become carriers, little shuttles that take virus as it's replicating into tissues uh, that are particularly sensitive to being infected like lymph nodes because there's a lot of cellular replication and, and right. this kind of stuff going on. And uh, spread the infection into those uh, tissue types, those, those compartments that might normally not get infected. And so you can end up with uh, decimating diseases where you're wiping out, um, let's say your adaptive immune system uh, or other uh, cell types involved in your blood um, that might not otherwise get attacked. And that is about as simple, I think, as I can make antibody dependent. No, it's great. Yeah. Um, so again, uh, B cells make antibodies. Antibodies are like forks. The handle of the fork, when, it's, when, the, when the lock attaches to the virus, the handle can make it so that that coated virus can then infect cells that it wouldn't otherwise infect. And they can carry that infection to places that it normally wouldn't go to. And that can be a very bad thing. Yeah, the macrophages make me think of like the Pac-Man and the Pac-Man game for some reason. Good metaphor. Uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of people think that way. And, and it's a good, it's a good, you got to start somewhere to make sense out of all this uh, mumbo jumbo. Yeah. And, and those kinds of simple metaphors are really helpful. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I thought it was a good explanation, by the way. So in a, in a practical sense, uh, if what would um, antibody dependent enhancement look like in a person? Okay, so um, uh, we, we can go back to it, it, every case, every disease has its own idiosyncrasies. Um, the classic disease example in humans for antibody dependent enhancement is called dengue and dengue hemorrhagic fever. Mm -hmm. And uh, so dengue is a mosquito borne virus uh, that infects people in the tropics. And um, it has four different subtypes. And uh, when you get, if you haven't had dengue before or you haven't had a dengue vaccine before and you get infected by one of those serotypes, one of those different types of related viruses, um, you get a kind of a, you feel awful. Um, you know, you feel like you've got a viral syndrome and you've got muscle aches and all that kind of stuff, um, but it's not life-threatening. Um, in the case of dengue, uh, if you have previously encountered one of, been infected by, I'm sorry, one of the various four strains, and then you get infected with one of the other strains that's closely related, the antibodies that are made against your first infection will bind to the new virus that's closely related, but it won't knock it out. The antibodies won't eliminate, won't block the ability of that new virus to infect. They'll facilitate its infection into cells and tissues that it wouldn't otherwise infect. And that can result in a syndrome of uh, um, uh, uh, 
breaking down of your red blood cells. Okay, so hemolytic fever mm -hmm. um, uh, as a consequence of this uh, process of antibody uh, enhanced uptake into cells. So you can get dengue hemorrhagic fever is a classic example, and that's life-threatening. You can yeah. die from it. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so in, if in the case of coronaviruses, um, and we've got some examples, feline infectious uh, peritonitis is a great example. And um, there's also a bovine uh, um, coronavirus disease that is associated with antibody-dependent enhancement uh, from vaccines. Uh, in those cases, for instance, feline infectious peritonitis, some of your audience may be familiar with that as a threat to their house cats, and uh, they may vaccinate their cats against that. Um, and that's another one that's life-threatening. It, it causes uh, uh, tissue damage in their uh, abdomen. Okay, uh, so um, in the case of what, what would we look for in uh, a human vaccine against a coronavirus that might suggest to us that there could be a immune enhancement of disease? Uh, remember I said that the big picture is there's a different ways that vaccines can cause right. enhanced disease. One of those is a special subtype, antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, what one would observe is uh, in the hypothetical, unproven, this is just theory, right. of a uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine um, that uh, was associated with antibody-dependent enhancement, what the signs that you would see is that the people that some subset of people that received vaccine um, at some period of time, often as the levels of antibodies, we got a fancy word for that, tighter. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, when the concentration of antibody drops, let's say six months or nine months after you've taken the vaccine, because these things have a time course. Mm -hmm. So as the titers drop, the concentration of antibody drops, you may get to a point where you don't have sufficient antibody that you can shut down a new infection by uh, another SARS-CoV-2, let's say the new Brazilian strain, just to take a, a stocking horse. Um, and so uh, in that case, what you would see is that people that had previously received vaccine and had antibodies that uh, were present, but may not be super duper binders and may not be present at really high concentrations. When someone gets exposed to a goodly amount of this new variant coronavirus, they might get much worse disease than um, someone who had not been previously vaccinated. And this is really hard to prove. It's something that you can't really test very easily at the level of a single individual, because particularly with SARS-CoV-2, the amount of disease, this, this uh, impact of the disease and the symptoms and the symptom severity varies so much from person to person. Right. We can only detect these things by looking at the population of people. Um, 
because there's so much variability in, in the disease that any one person gets. So it could be that six months from now, you get infected, somebody gets infected by one of these new variants, and they may have uh, a very severe case of COVID, puts them in the hospital, maybe they're gonna die or they're, they're on the ventilator. Does that prove that they had antibody dependent enhancement? No, it absolutely doesn't. Because a lot of people, relatively speaking, that get um, COVID uh, end up on the ventilator. Right. So just one person doesn't prove it. Right. But if we see um, at some time in the future, uh, if we look out at the population and there's people that have taken vaccine and people that haven't taken vaccine and they're relatively similar in the groups that we look at, we, we call that balance in, in clinical trial design. So if the comparative groups are balanced, but one group has had vaccine previously and the other one hasn't, and the one that has had vaccine, when they get infected by the new virus variant, they on average have much worse disease or they have certain types of symptoms that aren't present in the other group, then we get suspicious and it's time to start looking hard uh, in the laboratory to see whether there's evidence that the antibodies that those people in the previously vaccinated group, whether their antibodies in some way confer better ability of that virus to infect uh, their um, monocytes or other cell types. Um, so I'm trying to strike a cautious tone here and you can hopefully hear it in the words that I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, we don't know if this will manifest or won't manifest. Right. And frankly, the only way we will know is at some point in the future, if uh, we start seeing these differences in groups of people so folks out there, um, don't jump to conclusions. I'm not saying that antibody dependent enhancement is gonna happen. Um, I'm saying that if it does show up at some time in the future, like say six to nine months from now, we'll only know it if we have uh, good uh, researchers out in the field like the folks at the CDC carefully monitoring um, for whether or not there's the signs of this type of uh, problem emerging. And so far that there are, there are no data showing that I'm aware of in human populations. There's some laboratory data, right. but with existing vaccines, I'm not aware of any data saying, demonstrating conclusively that antibody dependent enhancement against spike protein has been a problem. Okay. Um, that, however, the caution is that the absence of data doesn't prove that it won't happen. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the caution. Okay. I think that's a fair statement that that's just that, that, good, good information to know. Um, are you still there? Am I losing you again? No, I'm still here. Okay, I've got a, I've got an un, unstable internet connection. That's what my computer tells me. I apologize. Oh, um, okay. I, I'm not getting that, but um, okay. I don't so, know. So, so hopefully that makes sense. And I've I've struck a balance, um, uh, in in sharing the story, um, and trying to help your uh, podcast listeners 
um, make sense out of all this. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, here's a question for you. So you can, do you see this um, antibody dependent enhancement? Can you see this, for example, say somebody got infected with the original strain of COVID, um, they form an immune response. And then, I don't know, nine months later, they get infected with hypothetically one of these variants. I mean, is it, is, is this only unique to uh, vaccines? Absolutely not. Great question. Um, and, uh, you know, reasoning by analogy to dengue, um, that might be exactly how we might see it first. Um, mm. So uh, it's a super point. And uh, as a COVID survivor myself, um, that is a bit of a long hauler, it's constantly in my mind. Uh, mm. and, I, and I can't see how, how it wouldn't be for others, uh, um, this, this risk. We are, just because you have recovered or you've received vaccine, doesn't mean we're out of the woods. If uh, um, not to push the uh, analogy too far. <laughs> um, so you mentioned it's associated with dengue, mer uh, mers, and SARS. Uh, we saw that in in the lab. Um, now, do you see this with other like so? For example, influenza. We get you know, our flu vaccines every year, or some ah. people do. <laughs> is that All a bad right. So, so that... literally I have, I have lost uh, jobs at two different influenza vaccine companies. Oh God. Uh, for even discussing this uh, for a long time, this was the third rail. You just didn't even talk about this. Oh. If you're an influenza researcher, um, uh, there are, there is a school of thought, uh, that um, we may be biasing uh, vaccine responses in our influenza vaccination strategy. Um, and that uh, in particular, this gets to uh, use the word earlier. So I'm uh, the phrase, I'm gonna use it, uh, original antigenic sin. Um, so there is, a, there is a school of thought and some data suggesting that um, a repeated uh, annual vaccination against influenza uh, with small changes in the composition of the vaccine um, may be uh, biasing our immune response uh, to influenza in ways that uh, aren't what we intend, let's say gently, um, uh, it, as, as uh, vaccine as vaccinologists and as public health people. Um, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a controversial topic. Okay. And uh, it's one of these things that influenza uh, researchers and immunologists uh, will probably be arguing about a hundred years from now. Uh, but there, there are some things about influenza and influenza drift and shift um, in our vaccine strategies that I think um, there's merit to uh, uh, re-evaluating our overall approach to influenza vaccination. And, and this is in progress. You know, the mm -hmm. challenge is to build a universal influenza vaccine. And it's really easy to, to say those words and really hard to implement. Uh, so 
Um, it's a great question and it's really complicated. Okay. That's fair. That's, um, I, and uh, I certainly don't want to cost anyone jobs or anything like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm kind of past that stage of my career. All right. so oh, well, great. Know. What's one more? Then? Um, <laughs> I can, I can talk about things like this now when I was in my forties, not so much. Oh, okay. I'm just a very curious person. I just, I, I mean, I'll, it'll probably get me in trouble one day too, but um, so my next question to you is how would you design a vaccine trial or test a vaccine to make sure antibody dependent enhancement wasn't an issue or is just, is this just a function of time and observation? Oh, those aren't mutually exclusive. Um, so uh, <laughs> okay. good, a good uh, clinical trial involves time and observation for sure. Okay. Um, uh, so, so this is, this is the tension between the preclinical or non-clinical is some people prefer that term, which is to say the part of drug and vaccine development that doesn't involve human testing, it's animal models. Um, so non-clinical and clinical. Um, problem. So, so for sure, a responsible vaccine developer um, would, uh, over time, and often concurrently with their early phase clinical trials. So the, it, it, with clinical development, it's not that you just do all of the stuff in animals first, and then you do the stuff in humans. Mm -hmm. um, there's a blending. So uh, often while you are in your initial uh, safety phase one and uh, early phase two testing, you will be continuing to do additional animal studies. And uh, some of those animal studies uh, in mice or monkeys or golden hamsters, or um, you know, pick your animal model, uh, might involve uh, administering the vaccine at a time point A, you know, like now, we, let's manage and we're doing this study from starting tomorrow. So tomorrow we would vaccinate the golden hamsters uh -huh. uh, with our new super duper COVID vaccine. And uh, we would um, uh, look at their antibody levels often. We could also look at their T cell levels, but let's focus on the antibodies. We'd, we'd look at their antibody levels as they come up after receiving the vaccination. Maybe they have to get two shots and we'd look at about when that level of antibody starts to really move towards peak. And then uh, often around then is when we would administer the pathogen. So this would be the uh, coronavirus in, in this example that we're talking about. Um, and uh, then we would say, oh, these golden hamsters are 98% protected um, if we do our job right and we're lucky. Um, now we're gonna ask the question, well, does it look like we're gonna get antibody dependent enhancement? Okay, that's what we might do in that case is um, take those, take another group of hamsters, vaccinate them and wait until they get through their peak titer and maybe the antibodies start dropping off. Maybe they're about half, half the level that it, they were before. And now we'll do the, the challenge. And there's measures that people that do animal research use um, uh, 
having to do with the behavior of the animal and uh, and the um, whether or not their fur erects and things like, or they have a runny nose, a whole lot of things mm -hmm. um, that they can use to score whether or not those golden hamsters are feeling bad or or doing pretty good and shaking it off, of which death is one of the endpoints. Um, and so in this hypothetical experiment, we might wait until the post-vaccine titers start to drop or drop to about half the normal level. And then we might challenge them with virus and see whether or not the disease that they get is better, worse, or about the same as it was when we administered the virus at their peak titers. Mm. Okay, so there's an, there's an example of an animal study. Okay. It could be done right now. Um, uh, now for humans, if we want to design a human study, um, what we would want to do is um, to detect antibody dependent enhancement in a human population post-vaccination. This is gonna be a long-term study and it's gonna involve a lot of people because it's not gonna affect everybody. It's gonna affect, you know, maybe if we're really unlucky, one in hundred people, maybe it's one in a thousand or one in 10,000. Certainly we can't anticipate that one out of every 10 people are gonna get it. If that was the case, then we'd have some real problems. So we have to make some estimates of, how, of what we call the attack rate, the event rate to design the study. We call this powering the trial mm -hmm. for humans. And we would have to say, hey, we're gonna imagine that if we're only gonna be concerned about the event rate of antibody dependent enhancement, if it occurs at greater than say one in a hundred people. Okay, now we're gonna have to find, um, remember I talked to you about the rule of three before. Yeah. So statistically, this is just the math part. The math works out that if we want to detect something that's gonna happen in let's say one in a hundred people, we have to test about 300 people. Right. And that would have to be 300 people that have received vaccine versus 300 people that didn't have vaccine. If we, want, if we think that we're scoring for antibody dependent enhancement at a frequency of one in 100. And so we would uh, get these uh, 600 people, we would randomize them. Well, we would get these 600 people um, and we might vaccinate 300 of them and not vaccinate the other 300. That probably wouldn't be ethical. But we might find 300 people who were just adamantly opposed to receiving vaccines and another 300 people that took the vaccines and we might enroll them in a study so that we had 300 people that voluntarily decided they would never take the COVID vaccine come hell or high water and another 300 people that were lining up saying, yes, please, um, can I have it? Two shots as soon as possible. And we would put those into a study and we would follow them we would have to follow them for a pretty good amount of time, like say six months or 12 months. And we would carefully follow them and uh, we would set things up so that they have a diary or a nurse calls them every other day or maybe once a week and follows them for let's say 52 weeks a year and uh, records whether or not they have had signs and symptoms of COVID disease. And if they have, how severe were they? And uh, 
Mm. You know, what was the outcome? Did they end up in the hospital? Did they end up on a ventilator? All those kinds of questions. So that's, that's in general, what one would have to do is, is you would prospectively identify two groups of people and uh, enroll them in a trial. Now there's another trial design that's called retrospective mm -hmm. um, where, so that's a prospective trial. Mm -hmm. um, a retrospective trial would be a year from now, um, uh, uh, folks at the CDC, because this is what they do for a living, right? Um, or at an academic institution, let's say Emory or Harvard or whoever, okay? Mm -hmm. would um, set up a study and they would look backwards at, at records of people, you know, typically patients that are in an outpatient clinic. So a population of patients, let's imagine that we want to focus on nursing home people because they're a nice, easy group to get yeah. and track. Okay, so you might set up a retrospective study of a nursing home uh, residents um, that uh, had uh, either uh, received vaccine or refused vaccine and uh, look back in the medical records and see whether or not they had uh, developed COVID disease and how severe that COVID disease was. And then we might be able to draw some statistical conclusions Typically, it would be a very large study, maybe 10,000 people. Yeah. So we would go into the place that's really good for this is the Veterans Administration, by the way, because <laughs> they have super good records. Yeah. Um, so we would go into those records, look at what's happened over the last year for a group of people that um, were easily traced and uh, of which some subset had received vaccine, another subset hadn't. And they were relatively balanced in terms of their lifestyle and you know their probability of getting infected. And then we do the statistics and analyze whether it seemed like one group had more disease or less disease or more severe disease or the endpoints go on and on. Right. Have I answered your question? Yes. Yeah. Um, and you you said this is a rare. This would be like a rare event. That's you know that's when you said like. I hope so. Okay, so we don't know. <laughs> we don't know right now. I mean, that's the honest truth. And I don't mean to be um, uh, alarmist. Okay. Is that uh, we have, we're, we're, we're all receiving experimental vaccines. None of them have met the criteria for licensure yet. Right. Um, and uh, we're, we're receiving these experimental vaccines because we want to protect our, 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 parents and our grandparents and our children and the people with cancer and everything else, as well as protecting ourselves. And we don't have many other options. But the truth is that we are accepting these experimental vaccines and we're really participating in an experiment, the size of which has never been done before to my knowledge. Um, and so we can't right now we're still too early in it and we don't really know what's going to happen. Hopefully it's everything looks good. Uh, let's hope it stays on track. Um, and, uh, we don't have something pop up out of, out of, uh, some, uh, environment where the virus has been mutating that, uh, causes us problems in the future. 
but you know, would, we would have to make assumptions to power the studies, which is why we went down that path. Um, and we would have to probably assume that it was fairly rare because to assume that it would occur frequently antibody-dependent enhancement is almost too horrible to think. Um, uh, and it would, if it does happen um, at high frequency, we probably won't need a clinical trial to figure it out. Over. Over. <laughs> um, okay. So I think that you answered the next question is if, is, is it a concern? I think you gave a very honest answer. Like this is, it's, it's, um, it is a concern. This is an experiment. Um, but it's also a dilemma, right? It's a pandemic. So people are, we're just trying to do, I guess, I don't know, whatever, whatever people can Everybody do. Everybody is trying to do the right thing. You're exactly right. And as somebody who's been through a bunch of these, um, they are incredibly nerve wracking. As if, if you can imagine yourself as you listen to the podcast, as somebody who has a chance to make a difference because of your training and your experience, and this thing pops up, you get a call as I did from Wuhan in the first week of January in 2020 saying, Robert, you've got to pay attention to this thing. It's going big and it's bad mm -hmm. um, and you need to get going on it. Um, if you're one of us that does this for a living, um, it's, it's incredibly stressful. Um, you feel the, the weight of the world on your shoulders and you're trying to do the good thing and there's no right answer. Everything is murky. It's, it's, you are, it is truly the fog of war. Right. And, and the NIH scientists and, and academic scientists are all, you know, kind of making their best guess. And likewise, the CDC. And right. uh, we don't always get it right. That's right. the honest truth. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's I think that's, a great answer. Um, nobody's like out to get people like there's, you know, you know, this is just people are trying to deal with a very complicated problem. Um, and we've never, you know, I, I spent my life reading and hearing the stories about 1918 and H1N1. Yeah. What happened with that influenza outbreak? And, um, and uh, I never imagined that I would be living in a time in which we would have something of comparable uh, significance as a public health threat. And maybe even, I think a case can be made that this is worse. Really? Than, than the 1918 outbreak, because we're not through it yet. Um, we just hit half a million dead in the United States alone. Um, um, do you think it was a zoonotic, am I allowed to ask that? Like where the source? Ah, good question. Okay. Um, uh, so. Uh, you should let, if you want to explain zoonotic, go for it. Cause I realize that's a big word that people might not know. Yeah. So what she's asking um, to put it in simple <laughs> words is, is the, uh, the theory um, that some have promoted uh, and particularly on social media. And there was a time about six months ago when you could hardly get on social media and not get inundated with people talking about how the Chinese had somehow released this from the Wuhan um, uh, um, Virology Institute. Right. Uh, inadvertently or intentionally, or it just was the whole spectrum. Um, uh, 
I have I have a paper in press uh, that talks about um, some of the uh, molecular virology characteristics of this virus related to other viruses in one of the proteins that this virus expresses that it uses to manipulate the immune system. And uh, when I was doing that very deep dive into the computer algorithms that uh, one uses to ask these questions, um, it, it became uh, really, really clear to me as it has to many others. This wasn't an original, I, I did make a discovery relating to that Partic a little tiny area of that particular protein. But in general, um, this virus is really closely related to a small subgroup of uh, coronaviruses. I think that, I don't know if I get this pronunciation correct, it's sarbenicoviruses. So that's actually a sub-subset of coronaviruses. Um, and it is closer related to viruses that are present in horseshoe bats Mm. It turns out that horseshoe bats don't reside close to Wuhan. So I didn't realize that. I just learned that recently. That's a dilemma. It's closely related to a group of viruses that exist in horseshoe bats, pangolins. That's those funny looking animals that kind of look like a uh, pine cone mm -hmm. on four legs and civet cats, um, which aren't really cats, um, all of which live in the that general region of China. Um, uh, so this, this is closely related to the viruses, the, the small subset of coronaviruses that exist in those three species. Um, and uh, it's different in many ways from the closely related virus that infects camels. So that's the uh, uh, MERS virus. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more closely related, of course, to SARS-1. So uh, did it come in, she asked, the, I'm sorry, Aaron used the fancy word zoonotic. Um, it, it, zoo means a lot of, you know, we can all understand zoo, right? That's talking about animals. Um, you can go to the zoo and see a lot of animals. <laughs> so uh, zoonotic infection is something that's coming from animals and it's typically crossing over into humans. Right. Um, so she's asking the question, did this thing come as a consequence of a natural jump uh, from an animal host into a human population. And what she didn't ask, but was the subtext is <laughs> that the rest of that sentence is, or did some bad guy make this thing? That's right. <laughs> um, okay. So um, I have, I, I work in a weird uh, world of biodefense um, that touches on uh, people in the intelligence community and um, uh and I work with those people from time to time. I'm not a member of that community, but I interface with it. Uh -huh. And very early on, um, there was intense scrutiny of the sequences of this virus to see whether or not there were any you know, fingerprints or footprints, evidence that this virus had been genetically manipulated by humans. Because we have a lot of really cool tools that we could do that with right now. I mean, it's kind of scary. Um, yeah. Uh, no evidence supporting human engineering of this virus was found. If it had been found, you can bet that it would have been, um, you know, shouted to the to the uh, 
to the pinnacles of, of uh, American society. Uh, but that evidence wasn't found. Does that mean that it didn't happen? Absolutely not. I mean, there's a lot of really intelligent people on uh, both sides of the Pacific Ocean um, that can do amazing things with viral sequences mm -hmm. uh, these days. Um, so um, could one exclude uh, a engineered source? Uh, it, it's a low probability, but it's not zero. Mm -hmm. um, can you say for sure that it jumped out of animals? Um, uh, you can't, you can never say for sure, but it's, it's a likely um, event. However, um, it's a little bit of a paradox when, when the outbreak first happened in Wuhan, everybody was talking about people in the Wuhan seafood market eating bat soup. And uh, there were pictures circulated, but it turns out that the horseshoe bats that carry these related viruses don't really live in that region. And I don't think that they're importing uh, bats, live bats for hundreds or thousands of miles in China to take them to the Wuhan live seafood market and, and sell them at you know, right. pennies per bowl. Um, so the, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So it's still, you know, the WHO, World Health Organization, sent a delegation to China and met with Chinese officials, visited uh, the Wuhan lab, um, looked at the books to the extent that there were books to look at, and that's a, an argument as to whether or not evidence was destroyed or not. And right. I, don't, I don't know. Right. Um, but, but responsible, serious people from the World Health Organization came out of that um, concluding that they couldn't make a conclusion and that they didn't see evidence that um, this virus was a intentional or unintentional release uh, from the uh, Wuhan Virology Institute. So that's a, that's a long-winded way of saying, uh, I don't know. Um, we really don't know. And it's one of these things, I like to think of the world as having three categories, the known, the, unknown, the unknown, and the unknowable. And this one kind of falls into the unknowable. Uh, so I don't know what to say, Aaron. Um, it's, uh, it's an ongoing thing and... Uh, um, well, I mean, getting used to uncertainty is a big part of this pandemic. So you're building coping <laughs> skills, if nothing else. Um, <laughs> um, well, I mean, how many times, like people don't wanna say, I don't know. I always say that in medicine, like a uh, doctor, you know, um, what, what the heck, we have a word for, I don't know. Um, but like, no one wants to say, I don't know, but even that's the most honest answer. Like, you know. I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist before I'm a physician. No, okay. and, I, and I say, I don't know all the time. That's Cause, good. Because the only way that we can ever get to, um, to knowing, to, to solving our ignorance is to recognize it. Um, oh. That's my opinion. Yeah. Idiopathic. That was the word I was thinking of. Idiopathic. Yes, that is a great word. And <laughs> I'm glad you remembered it because I didn't. Um. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's like a, we need a big word to say, I don't know. It's like. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so okay. a lot of, lot of things here that we don't know. And I think that if I can um, editorialize for a moment. Uh, 
one of the ways that some public health officials and even some media superstars have gone wrong in my opinion through this is not by not leveling with the public mm. about how much we don't know. And so people get, uh, um, they get concerned that they're not being given yes. um, the truth because they're being given platitudes that turn out to later on be wrong. Right. Like don't wear masks, right? right. Um, uh, and so I think personally, it's sometimes better to say, I don't know, than to fabricate something that maybe is a half truth. But that's just, I'm not, I'm not on the front lines of having to communicate public health policy over CNN. Um, and so I'm in no position to fault uh, those who have that job, but I don't want that job. <laughs> no, I'm sure and it's a difficult job. You know, I did a podcast with um, an epidemiologist in Hong Kong on face mask and I got the worst comments and, and emails from that podcast like <laughs> basically calling me Satan for even doing the podcast. Um, it was, I've yeah. just, I mean, so, it's just such an issue, but I'm going to talk about this issue right now. Cause it's like my next question um, about, yeah. about the mask. Um, and this kind of, and this made me think of another question. Cause you, 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 you talked about earlier, you know, how we get vaccines to protect one another. Um, but then, uh, you know, we're like, okay, you have to wear your face mask though still because I guess we don't know how much it's gonna slow transmission or maybe there's another reason that you know of. Um, but then the potential to mask this effect, like if we're not, we're like social distancing and we're not exposing ourselves to the virus as much as we normally would be if we're not wearing the face mask, um, could those things be masking the effect of um, this possible outcome of antibody dependent enhancement? Ooh. There was like Wait, two, a, there was like two questions. In there. Sorry. <laughs> thank, thank you for, for winding that up, pulling the pin and throwing it at me. Um, uh, so, uh, so I'd like to, so masking, um, uh, I back, um, I'm a vegetarian now. I don't kill animals. And, uh, if there, if, if, uh, heaven is, is, uh, staffed by mice, uh, I'm going to be met at the pearly gates with a army, uh, uh, you know, um, armed with pikes and spears. Um, uh, so there was a time in my life when I did a lot of animal research and worked with people and did some uh, virus challenge work. Um, and uh, one of the things that you learn as a uh, vaccinologist working in animal models is that virtually any vaccine can be overcome with an adequate dose of the pathogen of the virus hmm. or tuberculosis or whatever, okay? So the truth is, this is another one of those um, little subtle truths that we don't usually talk about, is that um, the protection afforded by a vaccine or a drug uh, against an infectious disease is very much a function of the dose and virulence of that particular pathogen that you receive and the route that you receive it. You know, getting it as on the surface of something that you eat is not the same as breathing it into your nose, just right. to give one example, okay? So um, a fundamental principle, even the best vaccine can be overcome by a large enough dose of virus. Uh, so it's easy to make the mental leap. Um, 
even if you're vaccinated, uh, good hygiene, not sneezing on people, you know, having good hand hygiene, and using masks when you're around people who are vulnerable um, protects them. And by the way, it also protects you. How does it protect them? Um, if you happen to be shedding virus um, and you have a reasonable mask covering your mouth and nose, then the amount of virus that you're spraying out as you talk or sneeze or anything else um, is far lower than if you didn't have that mask. So that means that the person that you're interacting with is going to get a lot lower dose if you have a mask on than if you didn't. Right. And this is a really clever virus. Um, I you know, don't mean to anthropomorphize, but um, uh, we don't necessarily know we're infected when we're shedding it. Um, so just because you feel okay doesn't mean that you're not actually shedding virus. So do the right thing especially now while it's still circulating and uh, protect yourself and protect everybody else. That's my opinion. Now, the, um, would we be, uh, you know, double entendre masking, would we be uh, hiding or obscuring um, uh, potential uh, vaccine breakthroughs, let's call them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, because of mask wearing. Absolutely. Um, uh, amen, right? <laughs> What's wrong with that? If, uh, so um, going back to the touchstone, uh, if we say that um, like the recent Israeli data are showing where they have this great penetration of vaccine into the population, the elderly population, they're seeing right. well north of 90% protection. Okay, yeah. super duper. Um, if we were to take that same group of people and change their behavior so that um, anybody who's infected would be, um, you know, feeling comfortable uh, cooking and serving meals and wouldn't worry about sneezing on other people, would that vaccine be as effective? Probably not. Um, uh, it's to go into this gets into the um, kind of complex nuances of epidemiology, mm -hmm. what we call the reproductive coefficient of a given virus or pathogen. But yep. a whole lot of things go into the grab bag. It's like a basket of stuff that results in the aggregate protection of the population. And that the things in that basket include our behaviors. They include social distancing, they include whether or not we use masks or whether we deny the, the existence of the virus and we just don't care mm -hmm. um, and go about our business as if nothing is happening. All those things shift, subtly shift the probability of the virus infecting somebody else or infecting us. So um, uh, would we have more vaccine breakthroughs in a world in which nobody cared? Um, and took no precautions, undoubtedly that's true. So who cares? So you have more vaccine breakthroughs. If you have more vaccine breakthroughs, let's imagine that we've reached 80% of us have all taken vaccine and now we all act as if there's no problem and we just go about our business um, as if nothing ever happened. Mm -hmm. um, in so doing, we're gonna make the 
protection that we might have otherwise had with the vaccine less. Right. Who cares? Well, we what's clear with this virus already is that it will drift and mutate and those mutants will uh, be selected for based on the population and how people are behaving. And if we give the virus, if we can get our population, us together as a community, you know, population is a fancy word for all of us together. Mm -hmm. if, we can, if we can get to the point where together we have a reasonable level of protection as a group, as a herd, this mm -hmm. is the term herd immunity, um, and uh, we let our guard down, um, then we get more virus starting to replicate and circulate. Maybe we're not very aware of it because it's only happening in one out of 10 or one out of 20 people. But then that virus evolves to escape the protection or the, vi the vaccines that we have now, then suddenly we're back where we were before, or maybe even worse. And uh, do you really wanna risk that? So that's the, that's the pep talk for um, eat your Wheaties, you know, um, mind your manners, uh, do what your mother told you, wash your hands, um, and do try to protect all of us in your behaviors and in your mask use um, for the foreseeable future. That's my, um, my preaching um, uh, to your audience. I hope it doesn't come across as too preachy. No, I mean, I, I, I get it. Um... I think, you know, part of the thing too, that sometimes I think, uh, not you, but like sometimes when I hear scientists talk who are so focused on statistics and, you know, viral load and PCR tests, I think like sometimes we lose sight of the human factor too. Like people want, like want to interact with one another. They're tired of the masks. They, you know, their businesses are going under, um, you know, there's, there's that part Absolutely. of it too, and it makes it I, so hard. I, I hate wearing the mask when I go out Yeah, and it, it causes uh, more carbon dioxide around my nose and my nose doesn't work very good anyhow uh, <laughs> for my own, I've got a, you know, deviated septum and this, that, and the other problem. Oh. Um, and so for me, it's kind of a pain in the can, Yeah, but I do it because I, I'm a member of a community and I respect the people in my community yeah. Um, and, and I don't want them to get sick. Right. I tell you, it's, it's just an anecdote. I, I got infected really early because I was in Cambridge during the Biogen outbreak. And I, even though we had written the book, I had no idea the virus was on the East Coast. Uh. And so I brought it back here. And my wife and I self-quarantined. Um, and that's a whole nother story. And um, we had a, a young uh, woman, I guess she's about 17 at the time, working on the farm. And, uh, and she came to us one day and uh, she said, my father has got the virus. He works at the local hospital and uh, her father was quite uh, obese mm. and had a lot of other risk factors. And I just felt horrible and thought that somehow I had put her father at risk. Yeah. Um, was just incredibly frightening to me mm -hmm. uh, that, that I might have been responsible for his death. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, he, he was a uh, number two person to take uh, high dose famotidine and he got better quickly and was back on the job in like a week uh, um, taking care of people in the hospital. 
Uh, so it had a good ending, but that sickening feeling that I might have inadvertently caused somebody else to die um, by just not being careful enough in my own behavior uh, is, you know, you can't forget that. Sure. If, if you've been through it. Um, so you mentioned are not like the reproductive number basically and, and, and herd immunity is kind of like a, to get there, there's a lot of factors that, that come into play. Um, and from your book, which uh, is not on Amazon <laughs> um, anymore. <laughs> anymore, by the way, I do not understand that at all. Like I read the book and I was, um, I mean, I skimmed. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm perplexed. And you read the uh, dialogue we had with Amazon to try to get them to tell us what, what, what was our sin? It was, um, it's crazy. Yeah, it I was like, I, I was like going, I was like, okay, where's the taboo part? And I was like, okay, this book is yeah. like just two scientists writing down stuff, facts that will help people. I just, that's, that one's baffling. Um, I mean, and then the whole censorship thing is a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. But that's just really weird. Um, In any case, uh, are not. Yeah, <laughs> getting sorry, back on top. Sorry, sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm not even going down a rabbit hole, though. It is weird. I, I've, I've done self-checks thank here. You, thank you for saying that. I, I got to tell you, Jill, my wife, who's a PhD, yeah. um, put her heart and soul. And remember, she was writing this in the third week in January. Right, right. Um, and published it in the first week in February. I did a lot of editing. I wrote some of the stuff. Yeah. But it was it was a labor of love for her. And yeah. she put it out on Amazon self-publishing um, and, and followed Amazon's directions about how to price it, which was very modestly priced. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and it was kind of heartbreaking for her to mm. have it uh, censored and not even be able to get an answer for why. Uh, so um, things happen, you know, I, again, I have to go back to people um, make decisions that they think at the time are the right decisions. Um, remember that at that time, uh, we didn't have enough masks to go around. And um, so there, okay. there was public messaging that you should not buy masks and you oh. should not use masks. Right. And there's a whole lot of messaging coming out of uh, senior public health people um, that masks didn't do any good. And uh, they lost a, a lot of credibility by oh, doing that. Oh my God. Um, so, yeah. And maybe they justified it as, you know, a necessary evil. I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't live in their shoes, but it was heartbreaking for my wife. So moving on from that. Um, um, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but yeah, it was, it was very informative. So, um, I'm happy you guys you. sent it to me and, um, I, yep. yeah, I still think thanks, you should charge thanks, for it. Thanks but... for the attaboy. Um, <laughs> and the girl. Uh, so, okay. Yeah, okay. So, here we go. Back so to a lot this of things go into herd immunity. Yes. So 50, you said 50 to 70% of the population needs to be immune so we can like get ahead of the virus, right? Like we're ahead of you, COVID, ha ha so, ha. Yeah, so remember this is me writing in the in the end of January and the beginning of February. Okay, um, so how does it change? We were, we were, I was, you know, I have, I'm not a master's in public health, but it's not my first rodeo. So I, I ran the math based on our best understanding of the reproductive coefficient 
And I've been through this before with Ebola and Zika and a bunch yeah. of other things. So I have little graphs that I can pull out and say, oh, we're at this place on this curve and that place on that curve. And uh, therefore it, it means that, fill in the blank, um, this number of people. So basically, um, if you have a vaccine that's around 90% protective, which fortunately we seem to, for the average dose of virus circulating, um, if you have uh, um, 90%, 80 to 90% of the people take that vaccine, then you have the ability to provide protection in the population to knock the ability of the virus to circulate down below one. What does that mean? Um, uh, a reproductive coefficient of one means that if I have the virus on average, I will give it to one other person, not two, okay? So you can understand that in the whole population, if the small number of us that have the virus only spread it to less than one other person, pretty soon the virus will peter out. Right. It won't continue to replicate. Right. So that's the goal is to push the ability of the virus to replicate in the population down below one. Okay. So um, you can do that with a vaccine like we have if you get uh, the vast majority of the population to accept the vaccine. Um, if the virus is, um, we, we use the term hot. Um, if the ability of the virus to reproduce and spread is um, relatively modest. And so that's, a, that's an R naught of, you know, two to three. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of measles virus, where you've got an R naught of like 11, and R naught, by the way, it's another fancy insider term. Um, it's the ability of the virus to replicate in the absence of any other things, any, any vaccine, any masks. It's the ability of the innate ability of the virus to replicate in an otherwise naive population. Okay, so that's R naught. So if you got a virus that's got an R naught of say 11, um, so that on average in an unvaccinated naive population, every one person spreads it to 11 other people, uh, you can almost never get there in terms of providing complete protection. That virus will continue to replicate. Um, even if you have a vaccine that's 80 to 90% effective and you get 80 to 90% of the population to take it. Now, fortunately, this virus isn't that hot, okay? And okay. we can argue whether it's native reproductive coefficient or not in a naive population is three or is it five? You know, it's something in, is it two? Right. It's more like in the three to five range, okay? And so um, you can run the numbers. And since I did those calculations that we have much better data now, and of course the population is no longer naive. Um, so, um, we're probably gonna have to have something like 70 to 80% of everybody that is susceptible to the virus, you know, out and about in the world, um, uh, taking a vaccine that's 90% effective or more in order to have this thing stop circulating and uh, attacking people and killing old people and obese people, et cetera. Um, so that, 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 you know, kind of 
that's a big number to get that level of vaccine uptake. And oh, by the way, um, then we have the other variability that you haven't asked me about, Aaron, which is durability, mm -hmm. which is another fancy vaccine word for how long are you protected after you get the vaccine? So we call that durability. And so that means that if the virus continues to circulate and we haven't hit that 70 to 80% uptake of vaccine, acceptance of vaccine is the language we use, um, uh, and it's continuing to circulate and the vaccine effect kind of peters out, let's say at nine months, just to be a pessimist, um, then uh, if we haven't hit that number by nine months, then uh, we're kind of you know playing catch up and we may never get there. And the big problem is uh, we've got to do this worldwide. Because <laughs> whether or not you're here or right. in the Central African Republic or in the mountains of Afghanistan or uh, fill in the blank, you know, the jungles of uh, Brazil, yeah. um, you're still infectable. Right. Uh, and the other thing that happens now, Aaron, this is a real nuance. Um, so this is advanced level are uh, not stuff. Ready? I am. Um, what will happen, because it happens with all other viruses, is that if we get there and we've suppressed the replication of the virus in our general population, we've got to keep on top of it and keep taking vaccine and keep taking vaccine, particularly for young people and elderly, people that are particularly susceptible. Because what happens is that if you were to just do the vaccine and yay, we did it. We knocked down the virus, super duper, okay? Um, and then we all say, okay, job done. We're gonna go do the next thing. And we're not gonna worry about getting vaccinated again. Um, the problem is that as that vaccine wears off or as more people get born, this is, what, this is why you see oh. episodic cycles of viruses circulating the globe is that what happens is as people get born, they dilute out the people that are protected and they dilute them out to a point where the reproductive coefficient of the virus exceeds one and then you get an outbreak. Did that make sense? That's really complex to understand. That but makes sense. Can, you wrote that in you your can, book, didn't you? Maybe, yeah. If you can get that, then you are, you have, you, you have a master's in vaccinology um, um, uh, and, and uh, public health, as far as I'm concerned. It's a hard concept, but it's, it's the fundamental reason why we use childhood vaccines. Ah. And, you can, and it applies, this, these ideas apply to the whole population. So if you have a particular, let's say a religious group, not to beat up on anybody, mm -hmm. um, but let's say you have a particular group that for whatever reason feels like they're not going to take vaccine. Okay. Um, of a, you know, measles vaccine or a mumps vaccine. Right. <clears throat> Just to take an example. Um, and, and that group, um, you know, comes together at a college or at a summer camp or whatever. And um, someone brings in that virus inadvertently, it'll spread like wildfire. Because right. those folks right. uh, are all susceptible and, um, and it'll spread and it'll reach a level of, of replication spreading. It'll start infecting people that in theory would have been protected from the vaccine 
at the normal level of virus replication in the community um, because they're now totally unprotected. They're making lots and lots of virus. And remember what I said, rule number one of vaccines, um, any vaccine can be overcome with a sufficient dose of pathogen. Right. So that's more, more preaching. Um, sorry about that. No, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, it's not something people think about really that often. Yeah. Um, so, so people ask, um, well, if we all take the vaccine, are we going to be done? Are we going to be back to normal? Most vaccinologists and virologists think that this one's going to be with us pretty much forever. Um, yeah. I know from the, like, on, yeah. on the health communication side, they, they discourage that back to normal language. Um, it's not going to happen. It's going to be, let's hope it's only as bad as the flu. Hmm. Well, maybe a better, a better thing is like, when can we start doing the things we miss and love doing again? Um, that kind of thing. I mean, I mean, I mean, a lot of people like, you know, they want to, my wife, my wife rides her horse. Yeah. Um, I, I work in the garden and do, uh, you know, construction on the side. Well, Um, all right. And, uh, you know, I, I, we go shopping. Right. But, but back to normal, I don't know. Uh, Mm. When is it a point in time? when I could have a barn warming at my farm and invite 30 people. Is or like, gonna, my wife, Jill and I talk about this all the time. How are we going to have to come to a point um, in the next nine months where um, if you're going to have a party, everybody's got to be, you got to be sure that everybody that's there has been vaccinated. Wow. I think we may get there. Oof. Um. Your farm sounds yeah. super, super cool, by the way. Um, <laughs> just, just say, I mean, I'm in New York City, so like, I mean, yeah, it's I dead here. Like the, but usually I live right above a, an Irish bar, which has its advantages and disadvantages. But I know, the, <laughs> I know the family really well. Um, they're fantastic, but like, it's dead. Um, you know, yeah. it's just so sweet. It's eerie. It's, it's a ghost. Wicked, it's wicked hard on businesses. Yeah, very on hard on people that are on the margins. Um, that don't have a lot of savings. Yeah. Um, just, just, just wicked hard. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when, are we, cool. when are we going to get back? I, Aaron, I can't tell you, I wish I could, but I don't think, I, I, I don't think that the other side of this looks the same as it did. If, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that, that the time after, uh, the 10th of January, 2020 is ever going to be like the time before January 10th of 2020. Um, I want to go see live music again. I, I, that I, is I, so not going to happen. When you're, you're, you, you have, you have, you're, you're doing the Manhattan thing or Bronx or wherever you are. And you're not getting the, you're not getting the love there. You're not getting the benefits of it. No. Um, yeah. Um, although that's, it's kind of, I mean, hard. I'm a survivor though. I mean, I get a kick out of, you know, I always call myself the master of the mundane. Cause I just, I really do enjoy the little things in life. Um, it's a well, gift. There you go. Uh, so yeah. you don't know when we're going to get back to normal. There goes the podcast. Um, I'm just kidding, but <laughs> sorry guys. <laughs> and, uh, that, well, I'm plus- just, I'm just the nattering nabob of negativity today. Um, <laughs> and the variants too. Everyone's like, there's all these new things coming out, um, you know, about the variants. So like, that's the, the variants other are, the variants are totally predictable. And, uh, 
a complete wild card. Oh, and, great. Um, I have, uh, and, and um, it, you know, that's another one where we have to, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we have to say, I don't know what the future holds. <laughs> um, so we don't know what the future holds. I think that was kind of like my final question, but I would love if, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but like on a serious note, that was fantastic. And you did a great job explaining things. And I won't, I think if my, listeners listen to this, they won't email me and be like, Aaron, that was too hard. I didn't get it. Like, um, so, I mean, they okay. might some, somewhat, <laughs> um, yeah. but I was it's wondering a, a hard line to, to, to explain without being condescending. Yeah. It, um, well, it is, you know what though? I don't know if it is because if I always like, I don't understand, like if I, if I took my car into the mechanic, I always say, talk to me like I'm a moron because I am when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> Um, it's just a different language, you know, or like even in, I was, you know, in the army, like it has its own language. Like you don't understand certain yeah. things. It's like, it's, it doesn't mean you're dumb and there's all different kinds of intelligence, but, um, right. Yeah. So I don't, it's, yeah. Uh, or even doing well, thanks, hair. My, my friend thanks, does hair. Thanks for the attaboy. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm up to two attaboys so far to, in this hour and a half. I'm doing really I try. This is, I told you this is a positive experience. Like, I don't, <laughs> I like never, I know people try to like throw people under the bus and stuff for, I don't know. Like, this is just like a podcast for nerds and listeners that um, like from my Facebook page and all that. And um, just trying to be like honest, empathic communication. That's like my thing. Um, I was wondering if you could end though, because I am curious about your, I, this is a totally different topic, but I know, and we could maybe if you think like, if you want to do another podcast on Ebola, cause I would love to hear more about that. But like, that's like, you had some really cool stories there. Do you, should that be another so the, podcast? Yeah, it could be, but uh, <laughs> the, just, just, just the, the teaser. Yes. Um, the teaser. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Uh, so that, that what we now call the Merck vaccine has an amazing backstory, um, and uh, and it it runs through a laboratory in the Public Health Agency Canada that developed it, and uh, and it was there was a period of time when we were when the world was just crazy afraid of Ebola and weaponized Ebola, and you know all we could hear about was Ebola, yeah. and then and then we didn't get all all get Ebola. And it didn't uh, run rampant through Africa. And it kind of, um, people got kind of used to the idea that occasionally there would be pop-ups of Ebola in Africa and uh, they would, you know, kill a village or whatever, but it was so lethal that it would kill that village and it wouldn't go any further. Um, and, you know, you'd see pictures of uh, people from the CDC burning bodies and things like that, but that's about as far as it went. So it was all over there and it was sporadic and we didn't have to worry about it very much. And so the money for developing Ebola vaccines kind of dried up. And uh, for a long time, uh, there wasn't much research in Ebola vaccine development. And um, some really good people had developed some candidate vaccines um, and had taken them pretty far to where they were just about ready. One of them was just about ready to be tested in the clinic. And then they mothballed it. And Public Health Agency Canada, in its wisdom, said, <clears throat> we're not going to do anything with this thing. It's just sitting around in vials. Let's sell it. And so they sold it to a little tiny company um, in the Midwest. Uh, 
um, called New Link, who bought it for bought that vaccine and the related vaccines that had been developed in the same Canadian laboratory for about one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and uh, it was basically a fire sale. And they bought the rights to this and and the product and all the paperwork and everything else, and uh, and they went about trying to get money to develop the vaccine for years and years, and they could just not get any love. And uh, um, then the bad thing happened and Ebola broke out in uh, West Africa along the coast and it got into some major urban areas and started spreading like crazy. And um, I can tell you having lived through it, um, that was scary. Uh, mm. There were people there were, there were, you know, classified projections in the Pentagon of a billion people dead globally. Wow. Um, and uh, if it went aerosol, and there was some public health people that I won't name that uh, are very famous that were saying that it was going aerosol. Oh my and, God. Uh, um, so you, I can't tell you how scary that was to be at the tip of the spear um, on that project. And uh, um, there was a number of vaccine candidates that had been developed in the United States by various labs, including the NIH. And then there was this one vaccine candidate that was held by this relatively obscure company in Iowa uh, called Newlink that they bought from PHAC. And they had submitted a proposal to the Department of Defense, your former stomping ground, um, to use this vaccine to ask some questions about immunology. And uh, the people that evaluated the proposals thought, uh, well, this might be worth doing, but we don't have enough money and we're just gonna put it in the wastebasket for now. And then the bad thing happened. And some colleagues of mine in the Department of Defense in the Defense Threat Reduction Agency um, uh, recognized that this had already been evaluated and it was in a fundable range. And they basically picked a proposal out of the trash basket and said, hmm, there's actually, and said, this is a candidate that we should pay attention to. Um, and there was a lot of meetings in the government among uh, the Hoy Polloi, the same people that we see on TV these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, they all got together and said, uh, okay, here are all the candidate vaccines. And they kind of parsed them out. You know, you're going to work on this one and you're going to work on that one. And my buddies at the DOD kind of got the bottom of the barrel, at least. <laughs> That was the way that it was seen at the time of this uh, Canadian vaccine that nobody thought was going to work and would cause people to get sick and blah, blah, blah. Um, but they recognized that it already was ready for the clinic. And uh, so wow. that's the beginning of the story. And they picked it up and um, a whole amazing cascade of things happened uh, afterwards. And part of it was because the Canadian government in its wisdom had given a bunch of vials of this vaccine that was ready to be tested in the clinic to the World Health Organization. And at the time, um, the Medicine Sans Frontier volunteers that were out in mm -hmm. uh, that part of Africa trying to help mm -hmm. were coming back out of Africa and were completely unwilling to go back in <laughs> for good reason. Uh, because a number of them were dying. And uh, so people at the World Health Organization uh, 
felt that we should start giving this vaccine to these people so they would go back in this vaccine that had never been tested. Um, and uh, a lot of crazy things happened. Uh, and uh, we can pick that up at, uh, at a later time, but it was another one of these cases where, um, you know, people uh, were in the crucible, in the moment, trying to make the best decisions they can. Yeah. But I, I can't tell you how frightening and intense it is to be in the scrum uh, when, when, you know, when you're hearing, you know, you get a cell phone call from your buddy who just walked out of the Pentagon who says, Robert, you got to do something because there could be up to a billion dead people in six months. Um, and, wow. you know, you better figure out how to make this vaccine quick. Um, it's, it's like nothing else. It's, there's an adrenaline thing, but it is bloody scary. And, and a, lot of, a lot of things got said and done in the heat of the moment that probably people regret. But the good news is that we got into the hands of Merck and uh, they took it forward. And uh, now we have a, a vaccine for at least that strain of Ebola. And I'd be glad to talk about those war stories some other time. Definitely, definitely. I'd love to hear more about that. Um, but thank you, that, that, was, that was an interesting story. I just wanted to hear that that, that was the teaser, everyone. Um, <laughs> anyways, thanks again um, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'll edit, I don't really need to edit this too much and then I'll just um, share it. Yeah, I'm not gonna edit this. I'm just gonna add an intro and an, and an ending. Just, you know, for- uh, As you wish, Dr. Stare. Formality. <laughs> I'm not really one for formalities, but like that, those the intro and the conclusion, we have to get those in. But um, I learned a lot too. So I'm very grateful for that too. Cool, well, thanks for the, the opportunity to have a little chat. Definitely. All right, enjoy the rest of your night. Um, okay. In Vir Virginia, right? You, you yeah. got it. Central Virginia by Charlottesville. Yeah. Nice area. Yeah. Oh. Okay. All okay. right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. I hope you learned something. Um, I hope you share this podcast and definitely subscribe. Um, I try to post pretty regularly, regularly. I can't say that word regularly. Um, <laughs> Anyhow, I learned a lot from that podcast, so I'm grateful. I'm always grateful when I learn new things. Um, it excites me. And that's really the whole point of this podcast. Um, it's never to come to, you know, grand conclusions. Um, it's really just to hear from smart people on on topics that are, are trending in the scientific world or, or the world of wellness. Um, I always think that's good. I always think it's good to hear people and have conversations Um and I would tell you to get the book that his wife and um, Dr. Malone wrote on Amazon, but uh, Amazon removed the book. Uh, and so that's a no-go. And um, it's sad to me that Amazon did that and, and would do that. And um, that's, uh, but I could go on, I could like go down that road because, you know, I'm Irish and I don't like censorship and I get heated, but we won't. Um all right, guys. So antibody-dependent enhancement, that's what we learned about. We learned some things about COVID-19. Um, we talked a lot about vaccine development, which I thought um, was fascinating. And then at the end, there was a little teaser there for Ebola. So hopefully Dr. Malone will come back and talk more about the Ebola story, because that sounds really interesting, right? Like, wow. 
like the fact that that conversation was happening when we're like, I don't know, walking down the street, filtering our Instagram photos or whatever. Um, okay. That's it. Um, all right, guys, stay curious, always ask questions, encourage conversations, um, and try to stay healthy and have a good rest of your day wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Okay. Bye.